Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode contains disturbing content, including descriptions of violence, violence against small children, sexual assault, rape, and incest, and may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. As you can guess from the warning in today's episode, the crimes that I'm going to be talking about today were perpetrated by a truly evil man. A man who cared more about his own dark desires than for the well-being of his family and children. Ronald Gene Simmons was born in 1940 in Chicago, Illinois. He dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. He wasn't a great student and decided that the Navy was going to be a better path for him. While he was stationed in Washington State, he met Bersabe Ulibari, and I could be saying that wrong, but she was a year younger than him, and she went by Becky, so I'm going to call her Becky moving forward. The pair got along well, but in 1958, Becky became pregnant with Ronald's child. As you can imagine, in 1958, to be pregnant outside of wedlock is kind of a scandal in and of itself. But to make it even worse, she was just 17 years old at the time. Ronald Sr. was only 18, so their age difference wasn't um, significant. The fact that they were so young, uh, unmarried, and now had a son together was a little bit of a situation. In 1960, Ronald and Becky moved to a small town called Cloudcroft, New Mexico, with their son, Ronald Jr., and they did get married. According to the U.S. Census data, Cloudcroft's population in 1960 was just 464 people. So you can imagine, this is a very small town. And the small family of three was trying to put down some roots and, you know, build their family there. In 1963, after about a year of marriage to Becky, Ronald decided to leave the Navy. He instead decided to enlist in the Air Force, so stayed with the military path, but for whatever reason, he decided to go with the Air Force instead. That same year, 1963, the couple welcomed their second child, a daughter that they named Sheila. Becky and Ronald continued to have children, and ultimately they would have seven children together, but this was not a normal, happy family. Ronald was known throughout the town as someone not to mess with. He was crude and often drunk, and friends of his children claimed that he often spent time alone in a dark room in the Simmons family house in Cloudcroft. Although it's unclear exactly when it started, Ronald had been sexually abusing his first daughter, Sheila, and possibly his other children as well. In 1981, Sheila, who was 17, gave birth to a daughter who she named Sylvia Gale. 
the father of Sylvia Gale was Sheila's own father, Ronald Gene Simmons. So he was the father and grandfather of Sylvia Gale. It's a truly disgusting and disturbing thing. I don't know how any man who can call himself a father would commit such an awful, awful act on his own daughter. It's just really disturbing. In a truly brave act, though, Sheila actually reported her father for the abuse against her in Cloudcroft, New Mexico. And the New Mexico Department of Human Services opened an investigation against Ronald Gene Simmons regarding the abuse. Ronald was livid that his daughter would report him for the abuse, and he wrote her a letter that allegedly stated in part, quote, you have destroyed me. You have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell, end quote. So this man is so evil, he molests and impregnates his own daughter and then attempts to make her feel bad about turning him in. It's, it blows my mind, this part of the story, and it really just gets worse from there. As I stated before, Cloudcroft is a very small town. Less than 500 people lived there. So the human services department in that town likely had very limited resources to go after Ronald. And before the department could take any action, he fled. He packed up his family and they moved to Arkansas. By 1983, they were living on a large tract of land at 250 Broomfield Road in Dover, Arkansas. So again, according to the U.S. Census data, in 1980, Dover's population was only 948. So we can start to see a bit of a pattern with Ronald Gene Simmons. He likes to be in a very rural area. He doesn't want a lot of other people being able to, you know, get into their family, um, know his family's business. He seems to be extremely private um, and just wants to kind of have his family around him, uh, be able to do whatever he wants with his family and have nobody interfere. Dover is located just to the south of the Ozark National Forest, and it's a little over an hour northwest of Little Rock, Arkansas. While the address of the ranch was Dover, the New Simmons abode was actually just north of Dover in a very, very rural area known as Pleasant Grove. They had about 16 acres of land to themselves, and Ronald hoped that the abuse allegations from New Mexico wouldn't be able to find him there. Even though he had an open warrant for his arrest in New Mexico, it seemed like he had succeeded in avoiding any sort of punishment for the crimes. Especially back in the 1980s, communication between different states' law enforcement agencies was pretty much non-existent, especially between states that didn't share a border. So Ronald had essentially succeeded in running from justice. But Ronald was still taking extra precautions to remain free. He installed a privacy fence around the home. And when I say home, I actually mean two very old decrepit mobile homes that were pushed together, neither of which even had indoor plumbing. They named their new home Mockingbird Hill, and that's how they kind of referred to their ranch and their land. 
Life at Mockingbird Hill was likely very difficult for the Simmons children. At some point, Ronald made them dig a cesspit on the property, which is basically just a hole that gets filled with excrement. Like I said, the mobile home did not have indoor plumbing, so you can imagine uh, what that means this pit was for. Ronald had depleted most of his savings buying Mockingbird Hill, and he held some low-paying jobs in the town of Russellville, which is about a 20-minute drive south of their home. He was a clerk for a freight company for a little bit of time, uh, but he ended up quitting that because numerous women came forward claiming that he had uh, made overt sexual advances on them, and it was making them very uncomfortable. I don't know why he was fired and he was allowed to quit instead, um, but that's kind of what we're dealing with in Arkansas in the 1980s. After that, after he quit that job, he worked at the Sinclair Mini Mart for a little over a year before quitting on December 18th, 1987. By this time, by 1987, two of the Simmons children had moved out of Mockingbird Hill, and they'd actually gotten married and started their own families. Billy Simmons had married a woman named Renata, and they had a son that they called Trey. Sheila Simmons, who you'll remember Ronald had abused and impregnated, um, she had also gotten out of the home, and she married Dennis McNulty, who adopted the child of Sheila and her father Ronald, Sylvia. Sheila and Dennis also had one child of their own together, a son that they named Michael. But even after all of the hell that she had gone through, Sylvia remained at least somewhat close with her parents, and she had agreed to visit the Simmons home for a Christmas family get-together on December 26, 1987. Although the entire Simmons family thought that they would be coming together to exchange gifts and have just like a nice, wholesome time together for Christmas, Ronald had decided on a different set of plans. On December 22nd, 1987, while his four youngest children were out of the home, Ronald took a 22 caliber pistol and shot his wife, Becky. He then shot his oldest son, 29-year-old Ronald Jr., After shooting his son and his wife, he then strangled his three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara. He took the three bodies and he put them into the cesspit on the property that he had forced his children to dig. This man had so little care for his wife, his son, and his granddaughter that he literally put them into a pile of excrement and that's where he decided to leave their bodies. When the four youngest Simmons children returned to the home later that day, Ronald's cruelty only increased. He told his children that he had presents that he wanted to give each one of them. Remember, this is Christmas, so he was basically um, tricking them and telling them that he had their Christmas presents, but he wanted to give each of them their present one at a time. So he first took his daughter, Loretta, who was 17 years old, and he brought her out back and he held her face under the water of a rain barrel until she drowned. One by one, he killed 14-year-old Eddie, 11-year-old Marianne, and 8-year-old Rebecca in the same way, holding their heads underwater while they struggled until they were dead. 
He then placed the bodies of these four children into the cesspit that he had forced them to dig. The depravity and cruelty of this man essentially forcing his children to dig their own graves and then killing them one by one right before Christmas with zero remorse is just unfathomable to me. For the next three days, Ronald lived alone in the decrepit mobile home with the corpses of his family members still in the cesspit. On December 26th, having no idea that the rest of their family had been massacred, the remaining two Simmons children and their own families arrived at Mockingbird Hill for the Christmas get-together. Ronald hadn't changed his mind and was still determined to destroy his entire family. When Eddie, Renata, and 20-month-old Trey arrived at the home, Ronald shot Eddie and Renata and then strangled and drowned Trey in the rain barrel outback. Sheila and her family were the last to arrive at the house. Sheila and her husband, Dennis, were both shot and killed by Ronald. He then strangled six-year-old Sylvia, who he had fathered with Sheila. He then killed the last remaining family member he had, Sheila's 21-month-old son, Michael McNulty. After killing all 14 members of his family, he laid the bodies of Eddie, Renata, Dennis, Sheila, and Sylvia in rows in the living room of the house. He covered each body with a coat, except for Sheila, who he covered with a fancy tablecloth. Now, I'm not sure if he did this because he felt some sort of sick connection or favoritism towards Sheila, but that's how they were found. He placed the bodies of baby Trey and Michael in trash bags and placed them in trunks of abandoned cars that were near the front driveway of the property. That evening, Ronald went to a bar and he had a few drinks. Then he came back to the house where he continued to drink and watch TV with the rotting corpses of his family surrounding him, as if nothing was wrong. Two days later, on the morning of December 28, 1987, Ronald got into his car and he drove to a law office in Russellville, where he pulled out his 22 caliber gun and killed Kathy Kendrick, the receptionist of the law firm. He had previously been infatuated with Kathy, but she had rejected all of his advances. She wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. And so he felt that during this killing spree, she needed to be targeted. After killing Kathy Kendrick, he then drove to an oil company where he shot and killed J.D. Chafin, and he injured the owner of the company. He continued on to the Sinclair Mini Mart, the place where he had worked, until just about a week prior. Once he was there, he shot and wounded two more people. Finally, he made his way to the freight company where he had once worked and that he had quit from. When he was there, he shot and injured another woman. He was absolutely on a shooting spree. He was basically visiting all of his past jobs and just shooting anyone that he could find. After he shot the woman at the freight company, he stopped his spree, and he basically just sat in the back office and waited for the police to arrive. He was so relaxed, he was even chatting with one of the employees there, and when the police arrived, he was arrested without incident. He didn't struggle, he didn't fight or try to run, he gave himself up and went with the cops peacefully. 
He was also pretty upfront about all of his crimes, and he told investigators that they needed to go to Mockingbird Hill where they would find the bodies of all of his family members. He detailed to them how he had killed each one of them, how he had tricked four of his own children into thinking they were getting Christmas presents before he drowned them in a rain barrel. He told them how he made his children dig a cesspit, and then that's where he put their bodies, and how he had drank and sat with the bodies around him for several days. And he basically was totally honest about it and felt zero remorse for any of these awful, awful crimes. Initially, he was charged with the crimes related to the shooting spree in Russellville, where he had killed two people and wounded four others. Now, I'm not entirely sure why the prosecutors decided to kind of separate the cases from the shooting spree and from the family massacre, but the crimes all took place in Pope County, Arkansas, so it wasn't an issue of jurisdictions or anything like that. My only thought or theory is that the shooting rampage had multiple witnesses and it was just easier to bring to trial quickly, whereas the family annihilation left no witnesses besides Ronald. And due to there being 14 murders at the house, the amount of evidence and exhibits needed for trial must have just been an overwhelming amount. So uh, in the end, whatever the reason is, they decided to try him separately for those crimes. In the first trial, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Kathy Kendrick and J.D. Chafin. During this trial, Ronald pleaded for the death sentence, and he received it. The jury found him guilty and sentenced him to death. At the second trial, Ronald was charged with 14 counts of first-degree murder for the family annihilation. Just before the jury left the courtroom to begin deliberations in this trial, Ronald attacked the prosecutor inside of the courtroom. He attempted to grab a police officer's gun out of his holster, all within plain view of the jury. At this point in his life, Ronald had already been sentenced to death, and he was eager to have the sentence carried out. So this might have been an attempt at suicide by police, but it's not super clear. After seeing the attack and hearing the absolutely awful facts of the case in the family annihilation, the jury found Ronald Gene Simmons guilty on all counts, and he was sentenced to death for a second time on February 10th, 1989. Ronald had been clear from the beginning that he wanted the death penalty, and so he waived his rights to appeal. Normally, when a death sentence is handed down, the appeals are automatic, because basically the system wants to make sure that this person gets every chance at a fair trial. And if there is any reason that they should not be put to death, then hopefully it will come out during one of these appeals. But like I said, Ronald decided not to appeal his case and basically accept his death sentence. Other death row inmates were absolutely enraged by this decision. Basically, when a death row case is appealed and it's brought to a judge, that judge is also looking at other cases that have received death sentences and kind of comparing them to the case uh, in front of him. So these other inmates kind of thought that if they had committed a single murder, if the judge was looking at their single murder case against Ronald Gene Simmons's case, where he had killed 16 people, including 14 of his family members, then there's a disparity there and it would then make their own case seem like a lesser sentence might be deserved. 
One of the fellow death row inmates, Jonas Whitmore, actually filed a lawsuit against the state of Arkansas on behalf of himself and Ronald Gene Simmons. It was kind of a last ditch effort to push out his own death sentence. Um, He had already kind of gone through the appeal process um, and he was at this point, him and his lawyers were kind of grasping at straws, but they went forward with this lawsuit anyways. The case Whitmore versus Arkansas actually made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But once it got there, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that because Ronald was competent, he had full rights to waive his appeals. Ronald Gene Simmons was executed by lethal injection on June 25, 1980, about 16 months after he was found guilty of murdering 16 people. This was the shortest time between a death sentence being handed down and an inmate being executed since the death penalty was reinstated in 1988. Mockingbird Hill has long since been destroyed, and the communities in Dover and Russellville have attempted to move past the awful events caused by Ronald Gene Simmons, a man who was as close to pure evil as anything I can imagine. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Simmons Family Massacre. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you are not alone and help is available. Please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave us a rating or a review to let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at Morbid Tourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia and ClarkProsecutor.org. <laughs>